Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift to you. And uh, we are in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of, of Mark. And for the past three weeks, we've been learning about eschatology, what's going to happen at the end of the world. And we've learned about the tribulation in the first century, we learned about the great tribulation that is to come, and we really, we wrapped up Mark chapter 13 last Sunday talking about the second coming of Jesus, and also we touched on the rapture, and if you missed any of those sermons, you can visit the website at, at riverbible.org. Well, today we come to the longest chapter in Mark's gospel. It's Mark chapter 14. And it has 72 verses, so for the next six hours, we're going to be going through. <laughs> What'd I say? <laughs> when we started Mark's Gospel nearly a year and a half ago, we, we discussed how Mark was a, a it's a gospel of action. Uh, Mark, our gospel writer, he's been writing through the power of the Holy Spirit. He got most of his source material from Peter who obviously is a man of action. Uh, Mark's audience is the Romans, and they are a people of action. So as we move into chapter 14 today, we're not only going to see lots of action, but we're also going to meet a, a few different players and characters inside this action. Uh, but the action is different. Something changes here. Jesus is still the main focus of the narrative, but here in chapter 14, something happens. Jesus is not the one performing the action. He's the one being acted upon by both friends and enemies. So there's a change here in chapter 14, really because it deals with the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel, that's the key to salvation. Salvation, this, this idea of eternal life, it deals with the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, the apostle Paul says this, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, that's the only thing that matters. Amen. That's it. That's the gospel. So as we slowly move through the Mark's gospel, gospel here, verses chapters 14 through 16, really we're going to focus on the central theme of what it means to have a personal relationship with God, and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Um, if there is no cross and Jesus did not walk out of His grave as He promised, we all have a problem. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul says this, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. But as we know, Christ was raised. God the Father raised God the Son, and that's proof. That's proof that uh, propitiation has been satisfied. 
that word propitiation, it's God's wrath towards sin. And it's been satisfied through the person and the work of, of Jesus. God's wrath, God doesn't wink at sin. It has to be atoned for. It has to be paid for. So in today's narrative, uh, we have a story within a story. Uh, the gospel writer Mark here, he likes to sandwich two stories together to make a point. We've seen him do this several times. Well, what's Mark, Mark's point today? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Mark chapter 14 and following. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priest and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that, the, so that there won't be a riot among the people. And while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and she poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, he went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and they promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Father in heaven, you're going to teach us much this morning through the word of God. And we, we pray, Father, that you would open all of our eyes so that we may contemplate wondrous things from all of your instruction. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 1. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. So Mark tells us that this is two days before the Passover. So this is still Wednesday. Uh, most likely this is Wednesday evening. So as Jesus was teaching the, the 12 disciples the Olivet Discourse, all of Mark chapter 13, Mark now gives us a glimpse into what the religious leaders were doing at the same time. He says it was two days before Passover and then the festival of unleavened bread. So let's begin this morning with a bit of, of history from the Old Testament so we can put this whole thing in context. During the, really the middle part of the Exodus, Exodus chapters 7 through 12, God was demonstrating his power to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, and God initiated nine plagues upon them so far. Pharaoh would still not release them from slavery. And when I say plague, I'm not talking about COVID, 
right? I'm talking about God turning rivers into blood. I'm talking about frogs. Can you imagine having frogs in your house? Hundreds of them in your bed, in your cupboards. And then gnats and flies. And then it gets real serious. The fifth plague was the death of livestock. So all of your livelihood, all of your livelihood is killed. And then it becomes a personal affliction with boils, boils all over uh, their bodies. Supernatural hail was next. That's the seventh locust. And then finally, darkness. Darkness was the, the ninth one. Darkness is interesting because as you read that text, it says, I want them to feel the darkness. Well, the last plague was where the angel of death killed the firstborn son in Egypt. Now, that's another sermon for another day. Um, but to protect his people from this plague, God told him, told all of them to smear the blood of lambs all over the front doors. Now, why would he... Why would he say that? Well, so that the angel of death would pass over any home marked by the blood. So in other words, the blood was a sign of life for the entire family. And any home that was covered in blood escaped the judgment of God. So the firstborn son was passed over and spared. And that's why the, the feast is called Passover. The angel of death passed over. So shortly after the episode of the angel of death... Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians, they're freaking out. You know, they, they, they're begging the Jews to leave, and they did, millions of them, and they left in a hurry. They were in such a rush that the, they were baking bread, making that for the trip. Well, the, the bread didn't have time to rise, so um, the, the feast is called the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's, um, it's celebrated to remind the Jews... How, how God saved them from slavery. So, verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. Now, remember, Mark's gospel is a gospel of action, so he uses as few words as possible here. And it sounds like this meeting is somewhat of a last-minute informal meeting with, the, with the, the scribes and the chief priests. John's gospel gives us a little bit more detail. He says this, John chapter 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they convened the Sanhedrin, and they were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let, if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Romans, they're going to come, and they're going to take away our, our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he said, you guys know nothing at all. You guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. He says, you're not considering that it's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. So this, this dear friends, is not a last-minute meeting. These men are conspiring, they are plotting, they are scheming to murder Jesus of Nazareth. So with that, verse 2, these men say, well, we can't do it at the festival." We don't want there to be a riot. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. Now, let's pause for a second. Have you guys been to jury duty, like a murder case? Have you ever seen an episode or two of uh, the TV show Law and Order? 
What's the difference between murder and premeditated murder? Premeditation means that the murderer thought about this, right? He planned the whole thing out, which means that there's a heavier price to pay with premeditation. And these religious leaders, they've been premeditating Jesus' murder for years. This meeting is so premeditated, and Jesus knows this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 2, he says, You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So these men are as wicked and guilty as they come, and yet they're clothed in garments of religion. And their conspiracy, it contains two elements. Number one, uh, the first was to get Jesus away from the crowd so they could arrest him without a riot. We're going to find out Judas is going to give them that, that opportunity. And then the second was not to murder him during the Passover. Now why? Why would they not want to murder Jesus during the Passover? Well, these religious leaders, they know that if Jesus is executed during the Passover, his death takes on a new meaning. If Jesus is murdered during the Passover, the Jews, they're not going to remember the Passover as God killing the firstborn Egyptian son and delivering them from slavery. Instead, they're going to remember Passover as God killing his only begotten son and delivering all mankind from the bondage of sin and death. And that is God's sovereign plan. Now, the Jewish leaders here, they think that they're in control. But they don't realize that God is using their own wickedness for his glory. So if Jesus had died at any other time other than the Jewish Passover and in any other way other than crucifixion, there is no propitiation for your sin. So in other words, God's holy wrath for mankind's sin is not satisfied, which means that there is no reconciliation uh, between you and a holy God. And that's awful news. That's terrifying news because it means that our sins, they're not paid for. And we're all going to pay for all of those sins in a very real place called hell. I mean, we're talking serious consequences if Jesus is not the Lamb of God. See, Jesus had to die at the proper time. He had to die in the proper way. Otherwise, he would just be another martyr. And martyrs don't satisfy God's wrath for sin. So, the religious leaders plan to wait until after Passover, but we're going to see here the sovereign hand of Almighty God. He's going to be at work for the rest of Mark's gospel. These religious leaders, they, they may have been planning this for three years, but their plans are certainly not going to divert God's sovereign plan for the redemption of all mankind, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, or verse 15. All right, back to our text here, verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard, she broke the jar and she poured it on his head. All right, so two things here before we dive into verse 3. First, it looks like Mark takes a pretty abrupt turn in this narrative uh, because now we're introduced to new people at a new location. Now, there's a, there's a reason for this. This is the second story that I mentioned uh, before. Secondly, the, the placing of this event in Mark's gospel is different 
than the narrative in John's, John's gospel. Some people will use this text to prove that the Bible is filled with mistakes and errors, but the reality is that John, that each gospel writer has, has a different theme and, and a different audience. See, in the, in the gospel of Mark, theological truth is more important than chronology. And we're going to see this theological truth played out here with these two stories. It's kind of, think of it this way. It's light versus darkness. We've got worship versus wickedness. And we've got radical generosity and then demonic betrayal. So let's take a look here. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. So Bethany is a small village just a, a few miles from Jerusalem. Bethany is, is where Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha live. This is probably where Jesus and the disciples, they're staying at their home for the week. And we meet a new person here for, in verse 3, Simon the leper. Simon, obviously, he's not a leper anymore. Uh, and if I were a betting man, I would guess that Jesus healed Simon, obviously. But they're at Simon's house because Simon's throwing a party. He is incredibly grateful uh, for Jesus, so he's, he's throwing a party in Jesus' honor for that healing. So we have Simon, maybe we have Simon's wife, maybe we have Simon's children. We've got the 12 disciples, we've got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is a big ordeal. This is a party. So in verse 3, as Jesus was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and she poured it on his head. John's gospel tells us that this woman is Mary of Bethany. This is Lazarus's sister. This is not Mary, uh, Jesus's mother. This is not Mary Magdalene. Mary is the one who seemed to be always sitting at Jesus's feet, listening to every word that, that he said. So we know that Mary loved Jesus. So can't you just picture this? Can't you just picture Mary walking into this room, into the house, and she's got this big, beaming, beautiful smile, and she's got this beautiful jar of oil in her hands? Mary of Bethany, she's, she's so excited to anoint Jesus. She walks over to her Lord and her Savior, and she does something unthinkable. She snaps that neck off, crack, and she starts to pour it all over Jesus' head. Now, it's not uncommon to anoint someone with, with oil in the first century. It really is kind of normal practice for the host, especially, to give you a few drops of oil. But what was unheard of is to pour all of the oil all over Jesus' head like she did. Verse 4 says that this oil was pure nard. So this oil, it comes from a plant in the Himalayas, the Himalayas, that's a mountain range about 3,000 miles away from Jerusalem. That's a 12 to 16 hour flight. <laughs> so all that to say, this, this oil, very special. Very, this is a, a, a family heirloom. It has incredible sentimental value. We also read here, it was very costly. It's pure. It's pure nard. Uh, meaning it's undiluted. There, there's nothing mixed into the oil to make it last longer. It's kind of like paying versus regular olive oil at the grocery store. You pay a premium for extra virgin olive oil. Same thing here. It's pure. Notice that she broke the jar. She snapped the, the, the neck right off the jar. 
that vessel can never be used again. And really it symbolizes the fullness of the gift. This gift is only for Jesus. So you've got all the, these people um, having a party. And she starts to do this and everybody starts to look at her. So this scene is dramatic. It's almost theatrical. Jesus is not just anointed here, but he is drenched. He's covered in this oil. Obviously, the perfume fills up the room. It's probably overwhelming. So let's pause here for a moment because we have another discrepancy in the Gospels. John's Gospel says that Mary anointed Jesus' feet and then wiped him with her hair. That's John chapter 12. But Mark says that she poured it on his head. So which is it? Head or feet? Well, considering the volume of perfume that Mary had, it was both. There's, there's no discrepancy here. Keep in mind that the writers are focusing on different aspects of the narrative for their particular audience and their theme. So both gospel accounts are true. Secondly, it's easy to get this narrative mixed up with another story in, in Luke's gospel where Jesus is eating with a Pharisee, a prostitute comes in, sits at the feet of Jesus, she is crying, she's begging for forgiveness, her tears start to, to fall on Jesus' feet, she does the same thing, she anoints him with, with oil. That's a different account, that's in Luke chapter 6. So that event has, it's a different story, different time, but it does have similar characteristics, so it's easy to get them kind of mixed up there. Verse 4, but some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? John's gospel identifies Judas as the spokesperson here. The text says indignation, that you are so angry that your nostrils are flaring. Oh my. Judas is not just irritated. This man is furious. It's, it, the picture here is when the matador, when he taunts the bull and the bull does this right? He's mad. He sees red. And that, that, that bull flares his nostrils. Judas is furious. Don't underplay that here in this text. That's the picture. Kind of sounds like we have a church meeting gone south, if you ask me. <laughs> Why is Judas boiling? Why is he seething? Why is he fuming? Why is he so mad? This is a beautiful thing that Mary has done. Well, he's the treasurer. He's the money guy. Verses 4 and 5, he says, Why has this perfume been wasted? This perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. So we've got an interesting insight here from John's gospel. He says this in John chapter 12. He says, Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag, and he would steal what was in it. And that's why he's so angry at Mary. So back to verse 5, he says, This perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii, given to the poor. And then we have a couple other guys begin to scold her as well. So can you just picture the look on Mary's face at this point? She was beaming, she was happy, she was joyful, she was loving, and all of a sudden, some of her closest friends began to scold her and yell at her. Just a moment ago, 
And the whole party takes a dive, just like that. She was, Mary was so joyful to give this gift to Jesus. And now we've got Judas, we've got a few other unnamed disciples yelling at her. She's now mortified. She's humiliated. Why? Because Judas thinks that Mary's gift is wasted on Jesus. Judas acts as if this gift is his. He believes that all that money was squandered when it, when it should have been given to the poor, or supposedly. But why does Judas mention the poor? Well, on the night before Passover, it was customary to give a special offering to the poor. Um, but Judas, really, he justifies his anger in the veil of good deeds. He said it might have been sold. So just picture Judas, you know, pulling out his calculator, starting to tally up all the waste, all the waste of, of ministry resources there. Wow. You know, Judas is the kind of guy who knows the price of everything, but he values nothing. He just... Judas knows precisely how much this oil's worth. He says it's worth a year's salary. Dang. That's a lot of money. A year's salary? In today's economy, Mary wasted $25,000 to $30,000 on Jesus at that moment. That's a lot of money. Can't you just hear the, the church ministry leaders today? Well, pastor, we could have started a bus ministry. We, we, could, we could have done that. The children's minister steps up and says, yeah, but what about the kids? We need to think about the kids. The executive pastor stands up and he says, yeah, but we got to pay off the debt. And then the AV team says, yeah, but we need a drum kit. And, and we need some smoke machines. I mean, can you identify with Judas' Judas's anger? Twenty-five dollars to $30,000? That's why he was so angry at Mary. Jesus steps in here at verse 6. He says, guys, come on, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a noble thing. She's done a wonderful thing. She's done a beautiful thing for me. So Jesus immediately comes to Mary's defense for two reasons. Number one, because Mary's motive was pure. She had no interior motive other than just wanting to bless Jesus. It was out of her love for Jesus that she wanted to honor him. Secondly, this was a, a loving response prompted by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. And we'll get to that here in a second. Verses 7 and 8 you always will have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. So Jesus, had the, Jesus came to Jerusalem for one reason, one specific reason, and that was to be murdered at the hands of sinners. Jesus told the 12 several times, but they, they never really grasped what, what he was saying. Mary, on the other hand, had a spiritual discernment that was lacking in the disciples. She heard Jesus say that he was going to die, and she believed in that resurrection. Now, how is it possible that Mary believed that and the others did not? 
Well, if you look over your shoulder, when Mary's brother Lazarus died, Jesus shows up, right? John chapter 11, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then just a few minutes later, she watches Jesus command dead Lazarus to walk out of his grave. So Mary knew what it was like to anoint a dead body. She had just buried her brother, and now her brother is alive. Verse 8, he goes on, he says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. So the 12 disciples, they didn't really catch the reality that Jesus was going to be murdered in two days. But Mary knew, and Mary believed that. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit of Almighty God prompted her to do something extraordinary. Circle this in your Bible. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. It's an interesting phrase. In other words, Mary did what she could with what she had. Somehow, someway, Mary realized when Jesus was murdered that she wasn't going to be able to do anything at that time. So this is a Holy Spirit moment. She did what she could. This explains the passion of her devotion. She blessed Jesus with such abandon that her closest friends, they did not understand her. I mean, how different would this story would have been if Mary had gone up to Jesus and said, well, here's a little drop for your head. Here's a little droplet for your feet. Here's a little. Brings us to our first key point. There's no love in stinginess. There's no love in stinginess. Where's the love in that? Secondly, why is this a Holy Spirit moment for Mary? Well, most of the bodies of the criminals that were taken off the cross, they were thrown into a garbage dump. However, Jesus, his body was laid in a rich man's tomb. But... Jesus was buried in such a hurry that nobody had time to anoint his body in the typical Jewish fashion. So what Mary was doing, she was anointing. She was the only one that actually did the anointing. So Jesus says this, she has anointed my body in advance for burial. So keep in mind, Mary of Bethany, she did not go to that tomb with the other women on, on that Sunday morning. Why wasn't she there? Because she knew that Jesus was going to walk out of that grave. Just like he told her. She knew that. Verse 9, he says, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow. So Jesus goes on to say something about Mary of Bethany that he had not said about the 12 disciples. And here we are 2,000 years later, we are still honoring Mary for this radical generosity of, of Jesus and her obedience to the Holy Spirit. She gave Jesus everything. She didn't hold anything back. Moving on to verse 10, then, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, he went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. So we have a transition back to our first story. Mark, our gospel writer here, he sandwiched the light in between the darkness. So we've got Judas again. 
See, it's out of this love and joy that we see from, from Mary of Bethany that we see the contrast now to Judas. So verse 10 points us back to verses 1 and 2. The chief priests and the scribes, they were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. Verse 10, then, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, he went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. Scripture teaches that all twelve of the disciples betrayed Jesus at some level. Most of them would do so out of fear. But Judas, once again, he's been premeditating this for quite some time. Notice here that Judas went to them. They did not recruit Judas. Verse 11, so when they heard this, when the, when the scribes and the Pharisees, they hear this, they were glad. They, and they promised to give him money. So he started to look for a good opportunity to betray him. So this unexpected offer of Judas betraying Jesus was almost too good to be true for these guys. The, the religious leaders, they would, they would have never gone to the disciples to propose anything like this. And yet, here's Judas voluntarily offering to betray Jesus. Jesus, he's going to betray the Son of Man, the Son of God. Wow. Now, these guys, they must have thought that this, this was the hand of God. Like, this is, wow, thanks, God. And really, in a way, it was because, the, because of, of God's sovereign plan uh, for the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. But they couldn't see that. They thought this was a perfect opportunity. Remember, they originally wanted to wait until after the Passover. But they jumped all over this. So, those are the two stories how do, how do these two narratives, how do they apply to you today? Well, we're going to focus on Mary. There is a lot here we could talk about. But we're going to focus on Mary of Bethany. Brings us to key point number two. Does my devotion to Christ cost me anything? Or we could ask it this way. How much devotion to, to your Lord Jesus is too much? Come on, Mary, a drop or two of this very expensive oil, that's fine, but do you really have to break the whole jar? Come on, Mary, you lost your mind. There's, there's no need to do that. So really, the practical question for us today is this. What jar are you willing to break at this point in your life with Jesus? What jar are you willing to break at this point in your life with Jesus? Because we're all at different, different places with the Lord. What has God laid on your heart that just moves the needle one degree to go from generous to this overwhelming sense of generosity? I think many of us fall into to three camps on this. Number one, some of you are overwhelmingly generous. In fact, you've broken too many bottles at, at one time and you can't understand why more people are not. Problem with that is, is when we break too many bottles over time, um, we tend to get a little bitter. We tend to get a little angry at, at others and at God because we've got so many balls in the air that we can't sustain that. 
And there's also a strange dichotomy with this. The more that we give, the more people ask us to give because they know that we're not going to say no. So for those of you who have broken too many bottles and you got too many balls in the air and look for your own sanity, I just want to encourage you to seek the Lord's face and just ask him, what's the one bottle that you want me to work on or to do or whatever he has you doing at that point and throw the other bottles away. Focus on the one thing. Secondly, some of us, they, we, we fall into the camp of, of giving the bare minimum. Now, you would never admit this because, you know, you're pragmatic and you're practical. The, the problem with, with all this is that really it's, it's under the, the guise of, of these polite titles that really you're controlling. And you trust in yourself more than you, than you trust God. And dear friend, I would encourage you to repent from that. The third camp is, is not one of generosity, but instead you expect to be the one that gets anointed. You expect people to be generous to you because you're special. And if you believe that lie, if you believe that lie that you're special, then you're easily offended when it comes to giving. And at the slight chance that you do feel like being generous, it's, it's always on your time frame. You know, because you don't want to be inconvenienced at all. And dear friend, I would also encourage you to repent. Brings us to key point number three. Radical generosity unlocks the door to things only God can do. Radical generosity unlocks the door to things only God can do. Radical generosity, really, it's the link that shifts the culture from me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity, right, to the real trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Radical generosity creates stories that people remember forever, and Mary is a prime example of that. Look at verse 8 again. Jesus says she has done what she could. Do you guys know that God has gifted you with abilities and talents that are specifically designed just for you? So the question becomes, are you currently using those abilities? Are you giving up your plans and joining God in his? See, the reason that Jesus memorializes Mary is because she revealed the heart of God. The most radical form of generosity is found in John 3.16 the most famous Bible verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. Dear friends, you're not going to ever outgive God. God the Father sent God the Son so that we can have this amazing relationship with him. So Father in heaven, we want to thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We want to thank you that you have paid our sin debt through uh, the cross. We thank you that he is the lamb of God who has paid the sin debt. We can have a relationship with you. 
You've honored his sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And Father, whatever you have laid on our hearts at this time, may we ponder these things this week. May we be more generous, more giving, maybe a listening ear. May we continue to share this amazing story of the gospel right here in the Verde Valley. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.